Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Well, we made it to Friday. Welcome to the Week in Review, everybody, the show where we try to make sense of the week's local news. I'm Zeki Hamid, filling in for Bill Radke today. And with me today are KUW's growth and development reporter, Joshua McNichols. Hey, Joshua. Hey. Seattle Times general assignment reporter, Amanda Zoe. Welcome, Amanda. Hi there. And deputy editor for the Seattle Met, Allison Williams. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we're live streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook, so you can watch us there. And later, if you missed any part of the show, you could always listen to it on the Week in Review podcast or go to KUOW.org. Now, before we dig in, we'd like to know what you, the listener, expect from Week in Review and what you'd like the show to be going forward. So we created a short survey for you to fill out. Just go to KUOW.org slash feedback, and you'll find the form there. We really take your thoughts seriously. And this is a really good chance for you to weigh in. So again, just go to KUW.org slash feedback to give us your thought on the show as a whole and what you would like it to be. All right, let's get to the news. Tuesday was the primary election in Washington, also known as the most exciting day of the year. Although that must have been lost in some voters since the turnout was around about 30%. KW editor Catherine Smith described the results this way. She said, if I could compare the primary election to Christmas morning, everyone is getting socks. Kind of boring, <laughs> nothing fancy, no big drama, just socks. And I agree with that. I mean, there's no Xbox, no TV, or official Red Rider Carbon Action 200-shot range model air rifle with a compass in the back and this thing that tells time. Just brown socks. And if uh, anybody missed that reference, that's from Christmas Story. Where have you been, under a rock? All right. There are thousands of ballots that have yet to be counted. But I think we're starting to get a clear picture of the results and the conclusions uh, we can now draw. So I want to know your biggest takeaways from August 1st primary. Amanda, let's start with you. Yeah, it seemed like a really strong night for the incumbents. Um, Three of them seemed to be cruising towards being in the general. Two of them, Tammy Morales and... um, Oh, the other one's... Oh, Dan Strauss. It seems like both of them have sort of hit that 50% of the vote margin. The only one who hasn't made it there is Andrew Lewis, who represents the downtown district, I believe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, incumbents seem to be a big story here. And it also seems like a number of voters are kind of frustrated that they're doing so well. Um, Soundside got this uh, really interesting voicemail earlier this week that I think summarizes how one camp feels about the results so far. Let's take a listen. Even though everybody wants to get rid of the incumbents, the quality of the candidates running against them was so pathetic that they wound up voting for the incumbent. (laughs) Well, there you have it. I know that uh, uh, none of you real are political reporters, but any thoughts on the variety of candidates uh, that we saw? Joshua, what do you think? The variety of candidates. Well, you know, it's I, I, I've been consuming this as a news consumer too. you know, reading David Hyde's reports, listening to them on KOW and reading Seattle Times articles too. Um, some great reporting there. But yeah, I, I don't have as much to say about the variety, but I was surprised. I, surprised in that way that I heard so much discontent out there when I was talking to people. Um, one of David Hyde's sources said, you know, she she feels like maybe she was kind of in an echo chamber, a social mm. media echo chamber. Um, and that's why she was sort of unaware of the support for the status quo that seemed to be embedded in this vote. Yeah, that's true. I I saw that, that there was a lot of uh, kind of throw the bums out type uh, uh, thoughts, but it never really materialized. I I do wonder, though, how much that can be concentrated amongst uh, the population that does follow this a little more closely. Uh, This was the first time in a while that we didn't see a name that for a lot of Seattleites was shorthand for Seattle City Council, and that's Kashama Swant. I know a lot of people that could have only named her as any Mm -hmm. Seattle City Council member name, and so maybe wasn't necessarily necessarily aware of who the incumbents that they were vaguely upset with 
were. And I think it really speaks to how we get information about our city council and get our information about who we're going to vote for. Um, you know, we're a we're a right we're a vote from home state. We get to sit mm-hmm. down with our ballot and take our time and look online to learn about these candidates. And for the people who aren't already maybe involved in some issues in their community and really have a strong opinion about their who they want to vote for for city council. We're turning to uh, Seattle Times, The Stranger, other news mm-hmm. outlets. Um, I think you noted that the Seattle Times and Stranger endorsements uh, really sort of noted the, the top two can- vote-getters in most of these uh, in, districts. Yeah, in all seven city council races, the top two vote-getters, one was endorsed by The Times, one and was endorsed one was by The Stranger. <laughs> the stranger. And, <laughs> you know, I think I'm someone who sometimes thinks about the news business as a whole, and I think about who has the time and the willingness and the interest in interviewing every single candidate for a position, being thorough about it and trying to analyze it and come up with a recommendation. I mean, you know, The Stranger has some fun with it. I think I watched some of their videos. They were Mm -hmm. asking about when the last time everyone did drugs in public was and (laughs) learned a little about everybody. But, um, you know, as we come to the internet now, and I think a lot of us are experiencing, it's harder to find real information, truthful, written by human information. That is one place where we're still turning to these legacy publications, whether they be the Seattle Times or something a little more offbeat like The Stranger, because to get that information as a public, you you know, if you vote, but without information, it doesn't carry as much weight. And it's hard to say what it represents if people aren't finding information about the candidates. Do, Do any of you read the endorsements before you make a decision? I, I, I often do. read contrasting endorsements. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From, okay. I'll pull up a couple and see see the reasons they 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 say it. Right. Right. Amanda, same or? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So here's an interesting uh, politics reporter, um, uh, David Hyde, talked to this one voter um, about an ind- how an endorsement uh, of Dan Strauss from. Uh, the stranger helped her. So let's just take a quick listen here. I also look to the stranger for my endorsements. Um, I trust their opinions on a slight majority of the issues, I would say. Um, And they were endorsing him. So that felt like a good uh, recommendation. So is this election really proving that there's uh, merit to a stranger slash Seattle Times endorsement? Well, especially in the primaries. I mean, when you come to mm-hmm. a general election, often we get a little bit more information about how the two candidates differ and people might have a stronger camp. Uh, but when you're coming into a primary, I think just there's a lot of people that just don't follow this. And I will count myself amongst them mm-hmm. well enough to have a strong opinion about such a wide field. And so I think endorsements are very key in primaries. Yeah. So here's an interesting story out of Tacoma. Uh, The leading candidate so far in the city council race in District 3 is Jamika Scott, an organizer who, according to a story in the uh, Tacoma Tribune last week, has filed a claim for damages with the city for what she contends was her wrongful arrest by the police department during an incident in 2021 where an officer drove through a crowd of pedestrians during an illegal street racing event. Do you all remember that that, that incident that happened? I do not. Well, it was in the height of the pandemic, so... (laughs) (laughs) But there was a police officer that was crowded by this crowd. There was an illegal street racing happening, Mm -hmm. and uh, he drove through the crowd. Um, I think he – yeah. So – but anyway, what's interesting to me about that story um, is that the candidate that has the most endorsements from many high-ranking officials, uh, his name is Melanda Redeemer, is currently trailing in third place. And he's endorsed by, you know, Derek Kilmer from the 6th Congressional District um, and a, a lot uh, a lot of other ones, previous mayor, the current mayor. Um, so I, I'm just kind of wondering, do we establish that? Newspaper endorsements are mattering, at least matter in, in this election. Uh, do political endorsements have the same weight, or are they just noise? Well, it probably depends on that that political figure, what kind of reach they have, what kind of community they've built up. I don't know that a lot of us are looking up what the former mayor might have to say, mm-hmm. but if they have already built a community where their endorsements are being spread on social media, then I think it could probably have a bigger impact than assuming that voters are going mm-hmm. to sit down and Google. Yeah. Amanda, if somebody that you had previously voted for endorsed somebody, does that matter to you at all? I don't know. You know, I think when we 
think about, you know, do endorsements matter? The the obvious storyline I think about is the election of Donald Trump, which sort of bucked the conventional wisdom of the party chooses. Um, but I, I mean, there's got to be a difference between, you know, federal elections and then, you know, such local ones where we have 45 different candidates, um, a really small group of people who care a lot and do their research. Um, and then, you know, not that much news on all the candidates. And we sort of have these endorsements that I think, like, illuminate the issues for a lot of voters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one other thing I want to get to this uh, about this election was uh, for you, Joshua, um, you've been keeping an eye on what might this mean for housing in downtown. Um, so what caught your ear? Yeah. Well, you know, at first I was wondering if we were going to see some sort of, you know, um, rise in interest in rent control or something that would mm-hmm. kind of follow this big vote. But that obviously, you know, went down in flames, really, with the city council decided vote. Yeah, yeah, voted down rent control. Um, And as I look at the candidates platforms, I don't see a lot of people. I don't see people talking about rent control. I see people Mm. talking about supply of housing. And so for me, what's going to be really interesting is to see how far the candidates go in this. The, The state of the state legislature recently, you know, required cities to change their comprehensive plans to allow a lot more kinds of housing. And so, you know, I see in several of these candidates' platforms, oh, yeah, we've got to do that. We've got to allow duplexes, triplexes, and quads. But that is what the state requires. Mm-hmm. So that's the minimum. Um, and so you're starting to see some code words in some of the other in some candidates who are saying, I'm willing to go farther. One of those phrases is alternative six, which refers to there are five sort of paths the city could take to try to accommodate more housing growth. And some candidates are saying, you know, like I think Marin Costa says, um, you know, supported an alternative six, which means mm-hmm. all of the above and more go farther. Um, and so I, this is as a housing reporter, this is where I'm going to be looking for some where are the divisions is the city council willing to go farther than the state or are they going to sort of stick with the minimum of what's going to be required? Uh, yeah. But but I'm not seeing that push for rent control. I'm seeing supply side stuff. And then on the other side, people are saying um, we need more incentives. We need more incentives for affordable housing. We need more subsidy of affordable housing. That's not a major change from the status quo. Mm-hmm. So finally, one last thing on this. Um, it come uh, Looking at the numbers right now, and maybe they're, they're not called just yet, the races aren't called just yet, but looking at where it's trending, um, come November, do you think we have a clear choice in every district? I, I, I don't, uh, if only because so many people came into this election without a good idea, and maybe we're learning about people for the first time when they read some of the endorsements. So mm-hmm. I think that those top two people will have a real opportunity to make their name. People aren't necessarily coming in with as much baggage and uh, a pre-told story as they might have in the past, which I think means this general really gives the opportunity for even the ones who have a a little bit of name recognition to almost start over and Mm. build the story that they want. But I mean, do do you think that their platforms are different enough that people will have, you know, a clear, you know, one or the other? Oh, gosh. Well, you know, I will say listening to Joshua about sort of um, what it means to not just hear buzzwords about housing, but the what those Mm -hmm. distinctions means. I'm learning something right now. So I might have said uh, that the the statements they've made are illuminating but now i kind of want to come come back yeah. through and with that in, in mind <laughs> yeah. learn I, a little bit more about it and so, in the you know, know not just the primary but the the actual election later i i think we've got time to start seeing some of those platforms get developed further like joy hollingsworth her stuff on housing it doesn't have a lot of detail yet so i think we'll see some of those things fleshed out at least in terms of housing i'm expecting that we'll see some clearer distinctions mm. in the next election yeah. amanda yeah I, I was about to say i think if I was any one of these candidates going towards the general, I, I wouldn't be uh, taking my foot off the gas pedal. Um, these races might get pretty tight based on, you know, money that comes in. And uh, I, I do think for a couple of the races, though, there is kind of a candidate that people might see as more towards the center and then another candidate that seems more progressive. Mm-hmm. Um, I think with some of the races, you kind of see a little bit less daylight in between them. But um, yeah, I, I guess this is sort of, you know, coming down to predictable ways. Okay. We'll leave it there uh, um, for this topic. We're going to take a quick little break, and we're going to come down, I mean, come down, come back, and talk about infrastructure.
Welcome back to Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid in for Bill Radke. Uh, if you were watching on, on YouTube or Facebook, our Zoom feed seems to have gone off, but we'll see if we can fix that. But hey, listen to the radio. Let's talk infrastructure, people. There are a number of important projects happening in and around Seattle that illustrate how our conception of downtown is changing. Two of those projects uh, involve the waterfront and Third Avenue. Joshua, you're working on these stories. Let's start with the waterfront. What's going on there? Yeah, well, the waterfront's a you know deep in progress project, and then the Third Avenue is kind of an idea that somebody's floating around. But um, so on on the waterfront, I spent most of yesterday kind of tromping up and down, trying to get a sense of what three quarters of a billion dollars in you know money spent on the parks there can do. And, you know, that that three quarters of a billion is on top of the money to build the tunnel, you know, after they tore down the viaduct. And then it's on top of the half a billion dollars for the new ferry dock, which just, you know, they just opened their front entry building this this week. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it. It is a pretty phenomenal change. I mean, I don't know if you all remember when the viaduct was there, how how present the sound of traffic was and how big a wall that viaduct was sort of separating downtown conceptually from the waterfront. Um, And and now, you know, it, it varies according to where you are north and south. You know, in the south area, you still kind of feel that traffic south of Coleman, uh, the Coleman Dock. It feels pretty busy and it's not necessarily pleasant to stand there on that corner. But as you get north, even though there's a lot of lanes of traffic going through, you're starting to feel the sort of separation from the transit, from the traffic. You're starting to feel the sense of refuge that's created along the waterfront. I think that's just going to get stronger as the trees start to come in and the landscaping and the cycle track. Um, What really blew me away, though, was the um, was these steps that are cascading. Basically, you've got a platform that comes over, I think it's Alaskan Way there, from the Pike Place Market. Mm-hmm. It it goes to the top of the new aquarium expansion and then cascades down towards the waterfront f- in a in an architecturally interesting steps called the Salish Steps. Oh, wow. And it, it the name just, you know, obviously it's referring to the Salish Sea, but it reminds me of the Spanish Steps in Rome. And they're clearly thinking of it as a major architectural element, but it serves this vital function of really sort of connecting downtown to the waterfront at this important place. Not only that, but it also takes the stream of passengers from the cruise terminals, mm-hmm. you know, which are, is a fire hose of money, basically, and ramps it up towards the Pike Place Market oh. and, you know, points it at downtown Seattle. So, you know, I, thinking about that, I, I follow sort of our travel and tourism um, sector a bit. And I, w- I was down uh, at the Coleman Dock right before the new uh, part opened a little while ago. And I just thought about how there are people out enjoying our waterfront, uh, but for the most part, they're not Seattleites, from what I can tell. <laughs> just when I think about my, commu- you know, my friends, my people who live here, um, there's some. I used to work down right uh, on Western Seneca, so I spent a decent amount of time out there on my lunch breaks. But there is a lot of great open space. Uh, you know, the restaurants down there have they've upgraded a bit. There's a few more names that we as locals might recognize down there, and I'm really excited about. You mentioned that Ocean Pavilion. I think that the Coleman Dock is one, but the Ocean Pavilion even more. I'm hoping is a, is something that could give us, as locals, the reason to go down mm-hmm. there and re-engage with that space. It's been under construction for so long. The crumbling viaduct was, you know, a bit rough there for a while. But I think, you know, I, I myself get a little disappointed that there is still that flow of traffic where I could have envisioned a really pedestrian mm-hmm. park space entirely. But there is a lot down there, and I think it we just are, have gotten out of the habit of being down there, of being in the market and of going all the way to the waterfront. And I hope to see that change yeah. with some of these new openings. And I got to say, I've been going over to like Bainbridge uh, more often <laughs> so, just for social fun reasons and so excited about the new Coleman Dock to just make that even easier to just sort of stroll right on. Yeah. yeah. There's a lot of great things happening uh, downtown and that we forget about as people mm-hmm. who, who live here. It kind of yeah. reminds me of that one Friends episode with Chandler when they look at New York City, go do f- touristy things. New York City and come back. They were like, this city is awesome. <laughs> I did that with my daughter not too long ago. We just went to the market in downtown. I was like, wow, this city's got a lot to uh, to give. And I think that, you know, with the last couple of years and how it's been, the locals who think they know it pretty well might be surprised mm-hmm. at the progress. I mean, these kind of infrastructure projects never come quickly. It feels like 
taking another viaduct took forever, but quite a bit has changed and um it's more fun, I think, even as a local to go down there and appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Amanda, what uh, any any thoughts on on the new Coleman Dock Ferry? Or, or yeah, or? I mean, I so I moved here two years ago, so I I never knew an Alaskan way that wasn't like a construction <laughs> traffic nightmare. And like even even as a cyclist, like going down that road just absolutely sucks. Um, and and it is funny. I do think uh, as Seattleites, our, our love for downtown kind of stops at Pike Place Market, where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that's great, but you know, I'm not I'm not crossing that road to get to the water. Um, but you know, I think with all construction projects, uh, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, and um, I'm sure it'll be lovely. <laughs> I, I do have to mention this Third Avenue idea. Yeah. So, I, you know, also thinking about. So, I was walking Third Avenue with a developer, Greg Smith of Urban Visions, and he's proposing this idea of pedestrianizing Third Avenue. He wants to bring some of that living room space sort of to Third, and this is just sort of an idea that he's trying to get conversation going, take some of those mm-hmm. buses off, move them to another place. But, um, you know, I, I'm still waiting to hear what Metro says about this. I think they're right. going to be like, heck no, we've got all <laughs> kinds of infrastructure there. Yeah, I was just wondering, is, wouldn't that wreak havoc on, on traffic downtown? Well, when you think about it, we've made these major investments in, you know, light rail, and his consent contention is we could move, you know, southbound buses to Second Avenue and northbound buses to Fourth, sort of a shuttle service that would run north and south. But people would have to get off at the north end of downtown and then transfer to the shuttle to get through downtown. But interestingly, like as the city gets more power relative to the suburbs, we're starting to think about streets more as places where you kind of hang out and mm. and rest and recoup rather than just places that you shove as many commuters through as possible. You know, that's kind of how we thought about Seattle in the 1950s, you know, um, when we were just Mm -hmm. thinking about how much of downtown can we tear down to put more freeways in. That's right. At that point, suburbs were, you know, suburbs ruled. And are you seeing that cities are trying to, or at least getting a little bit more control of the narrative here? Yeah, absolutely. And we haven't gone back to a totally pedestrian city. Even the new commercial buildings that are being built today have massive underground parking garages in in them. So, but there seems to be more willingness to create streets that are safe and walkable and there's more interest in that now that's right you just got to get them there which means more transit yeah <laughs> i know we've we've all seen how those sidewalk um eating structures you know that were a temporary thing mm-hmm. during the pandemic and how quickly we all realized how how nice it was to have that outdoor space i think the only thing that i think about third avenue is the bus system like the fact that there's a, those dedicated lanes for buses seems so key in getting the people who don't live right there down to that center of, of downtown. And I would hate to sort of uh, th- throw that baby out with the bathwater. Yeah, it's a trade-off for sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay, we're going to shift a little bit here um, and talk about uh, Blue Angels. And uh, so it's Seafair Weekend. It's uh, a weekend full of fun activities, live music, food. There's a car show, a boat race, and... Most of all, a well-known, the most well-known of seafarer activities, the U.S. Navy Blue Angels. They wrap up the weekend with an aerial performance, and this year's show is going to feature the first Blue Angels woman jet pilot, Amanda Lee. Some people love them. Some people hate them. So, Allison, where do you fall? Well, there's my opinion and there's my dog's opinion, which, like, <laughs> we, the, we were 50-50 split in my household, and yesterday he was very anti. Um, but then I, I made some bacon, and then he, he forgot about it, so, yeah. Uh, I think... I, it's interesting to compare it to last year. Last year, the whole country was sort of caught up in the newest Top Gun movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Blue Angels seem to be sort of tied into that. It seemed to come around rather quickly again. And I know a lot of people every year are sort of asking, why are we doing this? Um, how? What is the environmental impact of this? What is, you know, our tax impact? Like, you know, mm-hmm. we are mostly funding this through our federal taxes, not through individually the city paying for the Blue Angels. But we are all paying for this kind of flight that doesn't seem I'm not a military expert by any means but does mm-hmm. not seem to be the height of our military prowess being individually flown jets mm-hmm. from what I can tell um, it's not the one that Tom Cruise drives uh, yeah you know I, I, I do wonder <laughs> if like those drone fireworks shows are maybe a better show of exactly how great our, <laughs> our skills have come but um, I think it's interesting that those blue angels might be the only way that a lot of Seattleites know that seafair is happening. Um, we get surprised. I know some of us get surprised when I saw that the 
the parade signs were up. Um, mm-hmm. I went down to Seward Park and went, oh, yeah, they're putting up the grandstands. Yeah, the hydroplane races are today, right? Yeah, or- I believe so. I mean, I saw them being set up yeah. uh, over the week. I think it's unfortunate that the booming sound, which is really obnoxious for a lot of um, pets and uh, children mm-hmm. and, and adults, is our only really big calling card for the city of its seafair time. I think seafair as a celebration is lovely to have a, a summer event for the city. The Blue Angels seem to have almost become the main part of it, and it's it's not particularly local. Um, it's a little annoying to a lot of people. <laughs> I, I just think I find that unfortunate. I wish we could see a seafair where the whole thing wasn't dwarfed by that yeah. one military aspect. Here's a clip I want to play. This is uh, Joshua <laughs> The Blue Angels uh, disrupted one of your interviews. Uh, this, is, this is kind of fun. So here's take a listen. Uh, really showcasing both the Seattle skyline as well as um, the Salish Sea and looking out across at the Olympics. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't able to use that tape in my uh, in my breaking news report that I filed. <laughs> that was Patty Robstello of, of Washington State Ferries who was talking about the new Coleman Dock, but it was like impossible to get any <laughs> interviews in because, you know, you'd be, they'd be making this great point and then, you, you know, everybody would have to stop and cover their ears. Yeah. That is so just perfect. I, I um, also heard that city council, like even though they were all individually like zooming into the meeting, like had a similar moment where it's just like collective silence for yeah. the Blue Angels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Amanda, do you, do you do you like Blue Angels? Do you go see them? Um, I have never been to Seafair. I have never seen a aerial show in general. I'd say I think I would enjoy it if I was there. Um, and you know, when they're flying overhead, I do like go outside and see if I can catch a glimpse of the plane. But I mean, that that's sort of <laughs> where where uh, my interest ends. Um, I, I do think it's interesting that it's sort of like this like city discussion of like pro or con Blue Angels, and, you know, what it says about how you feel about the environment and the military and, you know, all these Seattle issues we love to talk about. <laughs> That's right. I do think one one of the biggest questions I think everyone has for years, they would shut down um, the right, I-90 bridge right. for it. I, they are not this year. I feel like our opinion of the Blue Angels might have been like heavily influenced by the fact that they didn't have to shut down the bridge. I think, right. and I think they're not doing it anymore since yeah. 2019. Yeah, they they haven't been. So I I I think that may have been like one concession that gave us. A yeah, Maybe if they just give earplugs to the whole city, we'd all yeah. be okay with it. I'll, I'll give a, I'll give an an alternate point of view from uh, folks that I've been talking to about this. Uh, about I've talked about to people who really love the Blue Angels and why. And it's interesting. It is uh, associated with their love and and maybe respect for the military, which is still the highest, the most trusted institution that we have in the U.S. I know there's a lot of different opinions here in Seattle about that, but there is that still. We do have neighbors that really love the military, and this is just a a showcase of might uh, that they enjoy, maybe makes them feel safe. So I'll just throw that out there as an alternative point of view and I asked my wife about it I'm like well what do you think about all of this and she just goes I just think they're cool (laughs) she's like I don't think about any of these that's why I think I would enjoy the show if I actually saw it yeah Um, anything else on Blue Angels I did see one do a flip, and, a, and it looked like they were going to hit the ground. They were going straight for the ground, and then they pulled up. It, that was pretty amazing. Yeah. All right. We have a couple of minutes left here in this segment, so I do want to go back to one thing that, Joshua, you brought up. I know we're kind of jumping around here, but this is kind of fun. Um, and so Seattle. Uh, there's something happened called a, a pickleball funeral. Yeah. During, what's that all about? This is kind of a funny little sidebar story. I, I accidentally was reporting on the pickleball tournament last weekend. And, uh, at the, you know, to, to make this work, they had to uh, resurface some tennis courts and then paint them with pickleball lines. And at the end of the tournament, they were obligated to return them back to tennis courts. And this was so upsetting to the pickleball fans because they <laughs> lack enough dedicated courts in the city. And so they held a funeral for the deceased pickleball <laughs> courts at the end so <laughs> anybody play pickleball i don't but have a lot of friends that do and i was just out in bainbridge recently and i was really surprised sort of along winslow there a lot of the shops were selling not pickleball equipment necessarily but pickleball shirts magnets <laughs> uh coffee mugs that referenced a love of pickleball so i think we've really seen it grow into a a, a character a 
of its own here. Yeah. It's definitely a community with a lot of opinions. Well, and Bainbridge is the birthplace. It is. There's That's the right. founders' courts out there, mm-hmm. which I I got to see, and certainly know that there's the demand for those spaces. But mm-hmm. I think Joshua, you mentioned just as a whole, Seattle is lacking for some public sports facilities. Yeah, and it's interesting as the population grows. You know, a lot of these investments in things like swimming pools were right. made just decades ago, mm-hmm. and yeah. and mostly when we spend money on fields, it's to like you know renovate them. It's mm-hmm. we're not adding you know sports facilities on the scale that we're adding people to the region it's really hard to find swimming pools in seattle yeah yeah and i'm seeing in the tourism industry some hotels are building pickleball courts i have to check i believe maybe the lodge at st edward put some Mm -hmm. in and i know there's one in portland that's advertising it and this is it would be a shame if something that could be public in so many ways ends up only really existing in the private sphere Yeah. yeah amanda anything on on pickleball do you play I do not play. I do know it is a fierce national battle over court space. I, I've read the stories. Um, I don't know which sport I would choose if you made me do it, but it, it does not shock me at all that like there was like a protest related activity near like courts. <laughs> right, I'll uh, I'll stick to soccer and basketball. I just uh, we'll leave it there. All right, we're gonna take a quick little break, and we're gonna come back talk about Skagit County and some other fun things. This is Week in Review. I'm Zeki Hamid. I'm in for Bill Radke today. Um, there is a divide among farmers in Skagit County. As the c- community discusses whether to prohibit farms from hosting weddings and other celebratory activities, through its Agricultural Advisory Board and Planning Commission, the county is considering a code change that would restrict agricultural land to farming activities only and limit agrotourism. Weddings and celebratory events are not the only things that would be affected. The proposal would also require special permits for you-pick activities. Allison, why is this story fascinating to you? Well, I think it's interesting. It is not something that's only happening in Skagit Valley. Uh, This has happened across the country uh, in other countries. Uh, British Columbia has had this issue come up. I think one case in Ohio went to the Ohio Supreme Court sort of arguing over what counts as agrotourism. Is agrotourism good for an area that is primarily agricultural? Or could that crowd out these longstanding agricultural businesses, farms, dairies, things like that, uh, in favor of things like event spaces? And I think I find it interesting because the Skagit Valley is so notable in spring. All of April Mm -hmm. is their tulip festival. Um, It it causes traffic jams. There's a lot of uh, tourists that come up to see it. It really only takes place at a few different farms, but really affects the whole region. Now things like weddings, which can take place in, you know, picturesque barns or beautiful meadows, uh, can affect farmers with uh, traffic, parking along the sides of the roads. They might get complaints about the smells of their, you know, farming uh, operations. Fertilizer. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I find it really interesting just because it's talking about the – the whole character of the Skagit Valley. It is this um, very crucial area, very close to Seattle, that provides a lot of produce and uh, a lot of agricultural products. But we're not as familiar with it. And I think most of us experience it through something like a tulip festival or a U-Pick and might forget how large scale um, that food production is. Um, You know, that you could argue that going to a wedding out there brings people to it and lets them see Mm -hmm. and appreciate the businesses that are out there. Others could say that the event spaces elsewhere are a better place for something as precious as weddings, and we should allow the farmers to sort of the space to do what they need. I just think it's really interesting to to question what the future is going to be for an agricultural uh, area that is so mm-hmm. close to a population center. Yeah. Now, a lot of small farmers really depend on that income, right? Mm-hmm. All of these events. Um, just why I think you've had Somewhat of a personal connection here. Yeah, I, I mean, a tiny one line of background. Years ago, I ran a bed and breakfast uh, kitchen downtown at Harbor Steps, and um, and then later I got really into urban farming. Wrote a book about it during the Great Recession, and for a long time, my wife and I were kind of thinking that might be a next career for us, is that we would, you know, 
basically buy a farm somewhere and open a and b on it and, you know, I, I could get out my reporting instincts by talking to a lot of guests who come through and get to meet people that way. But um, we learned through this that, you know, there's a couple of different kinds of farmers. There's farmers who are producing commodity crops and they, you know, produce just a few things on a very large scale, very efficiently, maybe traditionally rely on pesticides a little bit more. And then you have small farmers, organic farmers who grow more crops and um, really rely on that relationship with customers who are willing to pay more for produce that they know comes with, you know, they, they know that the farmer cares a, about, you know, make, growing heirloom tomatoes, for example, that are more difficult to handle, but are can bruise more easily in a large truck, you know, so. So this is the CSA farmer's market. Exactly. Producers. And, and, you know, so many small farms depend on having that second revenue s- stream in mm-hmm. addition to, you know, that helps supplement building that relationship with the consumers. So when when it, on the one hand, I hear when a farmer says, like, I need weddings to be able to make this work financially, like, who am I to say they're wrong? On the other hand, like I see the other side, too. We are using cheap oil, even though gas prices are so expensive, we still rely on cheap oil to ship produce long distances right now. And when we finally get past that, because we're responding to climate change or whatever, um, are we going to look back on decision to allow development on our farmlands and think of it, you know, kind of like we think about the Boeing lands today? Those were some of the best agricultural lands Mm -hmm. in the region. And we've got Boeing facilities there. Now, of course, Boeing is a major, important industry in our region, but there's trade-offs there. But is that what we're talking about, like big kind of construction on farmland, or are we talking about like small farmers just having some, you know, small weddings, little events, rather than you know building a stage for concert or something? Well, like that? for for a wedding, you need a barn. Yeah, that's not a big thing, but you also need a place to park all the people. Mm. You know, and that's land that you have to that stays fallow, or maybe you're parking it there while it's fallow. But and it's not just that day. You're bringing in suppliers. You're bringing in um, hygienic facilities, you know, if you're going to have large events, and that can affect just the operations in a particular area. So, Amanda, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I guess I was trying to put myself in the shoes of a farmer who might be for this proposal, you know, limiting weddings, events, etc. And like from the article, it seems like the main issue is that, you know, they're told like, oh, can you please be quiet? Like, can you not make it smelly today? But I guess if I was an industrial farmer, I would say, like, tough luck. Like, I, I got to plant my crops. Like, and today's, like, the one day to do it. Um, so, so, and then I also thought another interesting point with the article is that they, it sounds like they did do, like, a poll in the area. And 70% of the residents said that they don't think weddings should be prohibited. Okay, that's a, that's a big percentage. Yeah, yeah, I guess I was really interested in how this proposal sort of made it to city council because it seems like there is sort of this already existing tourism demand that Mm -hmm. is in the Skagit Valley. And what's interesting elsewhere, a lot of times agritourism is allowed and even encouraged as it is something that's meant to come bring people as customers for the farm products that are produced in an area. And the argument is whether weddings count as agro-tourism or not. Oh, right. um, and in some places it's allowed, say, only if the uh, wedding party or uh, guests have to purchase some sort of farm product uh, beyond just the use of the space. So why it's you, slightly different here. Why do you think it's been – I'm assuming it's been increasing in terms of uh, people having weddings at farms and going away from cities – What's what's the reason for that? I mean, I got married a long time ago. We were in the middle of a city, but um, well, Instagram, <laughs> Instagram. <laughs> I mean, I will say, I, I went to my first farm wedding at least twenty years ago, so it was okay, it was so a little bit there. before, but yeah. it, it it was definitely part of the the aesthetic, the uh, mason jars as as cups and mm-hmm. uh, hay bales as photo props and such. Um, I think, you know, people are – the old idea of luxury has changed and farms are a place to pretend that you're going a little simple but still make it mm-hmm. kind of funky and different. And people <laughs> go for the novelty. And that's the thing. It can be hard to – I think as a farmer probably to realize that people think of you as a novelty and as a backdrop. But it could be one of the few ways to connect people in the same way that taking kids to UPIC or petting zoos can be one of the few ways they really see that farms – 
do still exist. They're not just in the Richard Scarry books. Right. Do you think this could ever be a divide? I mean, we're seeing a divide right now between farmers, maybe big farmers, small time farmers, small farmers. Um, but could this be a divide between urban and rural where some of the rural folks say like, you know, all right, city folks, stop coming to my <laughs> into my town and ruining things for me. This is mine. Yeah, it, and part of urban life is that we lose a connection to a lot of the things that are more rural or uh, agricultural or forested. I mean, you see this with outdoor recreation, this this recognition that there's a lot of people in the city who can't access trails and we need to provide access to trails. And, and in some ways, I mean, a farm wedding, maybe that's not the best, most accessible experience, but, you know, bringing people to farms to learn about produce and how their produce is grown, that's agritourism too, you know? I don't know if that would be restricted under this kind of thing or not. Yeah, interesting thing to uh, contemplate. Yeah, the thing through my head was, you know, this is sort of a no weddings in my backyard Argument, yeah. <laughs> it seems. What's the acronym? Yeah, we need an acronym <laughs> for that. <laughs> Wimby. <laughs> Wimby. There you go. No. <laughs> All right. Um, we're, let's move on from this and but continue with some of this environmental theme, so to speak. The next story here we're going to talk about is going to give you a reason to keep possums in your backyard. At least if you find one, just give it a name and leave it be. We had one one time in our yard. We called it awesome. Uh <laughs> Warming trends exasperated by climate change are creating a more hospitable environment for ticks, which is why you need the possums, uh, which are usually found in the northeast and the Midwest. So, Amanda, how much trouble does that spell for us here in the northwest? Yeah, it seems like the exact, um, you know, harm in terms of like when the season's going to be, how many more cases is sort of still unclear now. But in general, there is sort of an understanding that as the climate warms, that's going to make it a much more livable place for many things like algae and ticks and um, mosquitoes. I think the story we talked about talked about, um, you know, a, a few cases of malaria in Florida and Texas. Um, wait, and I'm sorry, do opossums eat ticks? They sure do. I have never, I, I did not know, I didn't know if that was like common knowledge or something. And we have opossums, so maybe the populations will boom. We do have them, yeah. yeah. As I said, we had one living under our shed, um, surprised us one time uh, in the middle of the night, but I love possums, they're cute. Now, Amanda, do you know anything about the rise of Lyme disease? I know that is something that's a big issue on the East Coast. And what I have heard here it, that may absolutely not be correct was that it, while we may have a rise in ticks, we don't have quite as much Lyme prevalence yet. But is that changing? Yeah, it seems like the main cases, um, and it's only been like a handful mm -hmm. here, have been anaplasmosis, which I'm not as familiar with. Mm -hmm. I guess it really, I thought it was interesting because I'm from the East Coast and Lyme disease is just sort of like an accepted part of life. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, when we come back, we're going to check our ankles. But, you know, I wonder if this is sort of going to have to change the culture of going outdoors here, you know, with more education. And it's just going to become more and more of a risk in the future. Mm -hmm. I, I do have to I, – I hope this doesn't derail it. But when you first proposed this idea of ticks, I thought you were going to talk about this disease that ticks can transfer to humans that creates an allergy against red meat. And, and uh, Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that that is a thing. Amanda, that's I a thing. Am not, I had a friend who got Lyme disease, and that was like her excuse for vegetarianism. <laughs> I oh, do, you need an excuse? Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I do know that's like a rare – possibility of like Lyme disease or, or yeah. tick Al Alpha gal syndrome or something like that oh, it's called. Okay. So so you're seeing an upside here? Well, I, my my you know my my wife was a vegetarian for a while. We we don't eat a huge amount of meat, but we like meat in moderation, you uh -huh. know. So I I was just mm -hmm. thinking maybe some you know easing off of our American you know, lust for red meat maybe maybe is a little bit of a good thing. I'm being a little bit facetious here because obviously I don't want to minimize the downside of any disease, especially Lyme disease, you know, but there you I don't go. Know. You're, you're seeing the good in everything. <laughs> you're always looking for the upside. Right, right, right. <laughs> okay. Um, we're going to talk for uh, about another story here. 
uh, because here's my wonderful segue. Speaking of ticks, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about TikTok. Oh, no. How lame is that, huh? Uh, <laughs> our next story is very bizarre, and it involves TikTok, hockey romance literature, the Seattle Kraken, betrayal, harassment, influencers. This story has it all. Uh, Allison, can you walk us through this recent controversy I, with the Seattle Kraken? I can try, but okay. like any good like elder millennial, um, <laughs> I I get my TikTok news um, on other platforms when Instagram. people like re- like Instagram or Twitter because yep. I I can't. <laughs> I'm too old for actual TikTok. Uh, so there is a corner of TikTok, the video platform, uh, devoted to books, book talk, they call it, mm-hmm. and specifically romance novels. And there's a big rise in hockey romance novels. Very kind of cool trend that's happening. And a, a some of those video makers started identifying players that they thought would make good romance leads. Mm-hmm. Specifically, there was a Kraken player. Um, I think it's Alex Wenberg, mm-hmm. if I'm pronouncing that right. Um who is, you know, very conventionally good looking, uh, was sort of the subject of videos that be increasingly had memes and jokes and inside jokes. And uh, there were references to some songs that are pretty explicit sexually. <laughs> At one point, the Kraken um, official social media sort of embraced the book talk trend and they posted some of their own things referencing the, the larger appreciation of uh, sort of the good looks of some mm-hmm. of their players. But uh, recently, the wife of Alex Wenberg posted that it was getting out of hand in some places. Some of these users were using really sexually explicit um, memes and references and uh, to her husband. And she noted that if this says the other way around, if, a, of, say, a female tennis player was being treated with this kind of objectification, we would recognize it as a mm-hmm. problem. Um, and uh, one of the tick talkers specifically who was brought out by the Kraken to watch one of the games because she's referenced uh, the Kraken and its players so often was asked to was sort of pointed out as being one of the problems. So I think, you know, it's a little crazy. It's a little bit of sex and a little bit of sports uh-huh. and and the Internet. But it's really a chance to think about how memes online, when they're built around real people, especially celebrities, people with whom we have these parasocial relationships where people sort of imagine a connection, they can get out of hand and they can be problematic, not just because this one player was treated in a sexually objectifying kind of way, but in the larger sense, it maybe teaches us all how we can treat other people or, mm-hmm. you know, what what other good looking people might be out there for to be treated as that this is an acceptable way. So I think the checking on this, the fact that, you know, the Kraken have sort of dialed back and I think I believe they mentioned uh, in a statement that they were going to be more careful about mm-hmm. um, these issues. It's good to always check. The internet is not a harmless place, and um, jokes, even about a famous person, yeah. they they have effect. Yeah, and and uh, Amanda, it seems to me here and uh, that the 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 Kraken had jumped onto something they didn't quite understand. Like there's this real big fandom here with book talk and everything like that, and they said, "Hey, this is great for us to promote, you know, our team and everything." They just jumped right in. Uh, but they didn't quite know what they were getting into. Yeah, when you said this is a story about sports, sex, and the internet, I was like, yep, those are the three yeah. <laughs> three categories here. <laughs> um, which is like, you know, you could talk forever about the objectification of athletes, um, you know, specifically female ones, but then also that, you know, the internet is its own thing. Yeah. And um, I mean, this reminds me when any celebrity is like, oh, yeah, like, there's so much fan fiction, like, written about me online. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to know what to do as you know as a as a player and also as you know the Kraken being a brand because it's like you wanna you don't want to amplify the wrong flames. Mm-hmm. And I will say this came from a place of the Kraken have been trying you know they're building a fan base from nothing and they've been reaching out to some of the non traditional places. This is largely women. It's a romance novel section of the internet, and so I, that impulse to me is is a good one to try to think of the Kraken fan base as more than what may be considered the traditional hockey fans. But uh, yeah, it just sort of shows that maybe everyone needs to have like a 22-year-old on staff that can like, <laughs> <laughs> explain the intricacies of some of the memes. Cause, yeah. But one thing here, Joshua, is that it, it, when partnerships happen with big known brands, like you know whether it's like, say, Amazon, Nike, whatever, right? you know what you're getting into there. But when sports teams are looking for these partnerships with influencers, it's just a whole new ballgame. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, the internet likes to put people in boxes, you know? Mm -hmm. It likes to say, it likes to apply labels. 
And um, that's convenient for marketing as well, you know. <laughs> um, but it's not always who we think we are or who we want to be, you know. Yeah. And this is a case where, you know, I mean, I wouldn't mind being considered, you know, an attractive person. But, I, I, you know, I, I don't think that he wanted to go this far, right. you know, in right. this case. Yeah. So. Yeah. And it's interesting, Amanda, because you mentioned the sexualization of athletes. And I remember I'm a huge soccer fan. And the 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 women's team back in just in the early 2000s not quite because now they're a lot well known but back then a way to get people interested they were really trying to sexualize them there they were doing the same thing with the men's team they put a calendar out where each player that was i think in 2006 where they were posing in a you know kind of a sexy pose something like that but uh at one point we have to make that separation don't we yeah totally yeah, firefighters too. They do this all the, the time. That's right. They do it with firefighters. Yeah. <laughs> when will we learn? All right. We're getting towards the end of the show here. Let's take a couple of minutes and just talk about, hey, what's making us smile this week? I, um, um, Allison, is it the Blue Angels? Oh, gosh. I'm afraid to say it's not. <laughs> the thing that's making me smile is I just read an email this morning to my family. We're planning a family camping trip up at Rainier in a couple of weeks. And any shopping list that starts with, like, s'mores is a great one to me. Uh, we are aware that there could be a fire ban by that point. We're paying attention to it. Um, also learned that Costco sells some propane fire pits that are often usable even when there are fire bans. So mm-hmm. it's really important to follow those rules but also fit the s'mores in somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> I agree with that. Yeah, Joshua, what's, uh, what's on your mind? What's making you smile this week? Well, when I toured the waterfront, I learned that they're going to build bathrooms there. So, you know, I was when I was reporting <laughs> That's what you're excited about. Yeah, well, I'm I I about was that. <laughs> I was just reporting I was just reporting all day like downtown yesterday. I you know, I went I was working in the library and the library bathrooms were all closed because they were cleaning them. And I'm like, so I I could have used a restroom a couple of times as I was trudging up and down the waterfront. (laughs) That's fair. That makes me happy. All right. That sounds awesome. Amanda was making you happy. Uh, I, I wanted to come up with something a little bit more newsy, but I think I'm just going to go with the classic, which is that it's Blackberry season. Yes. You know, the you know one or two months of the year, those thorny bushes that take over everyone's backyard and the, you know, the edges of bike trails, um, they're... They're they're putting out their best face with their with their fruits. Um, and that's what um that's what makes me smile this week. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. So what's uh, making me smile again? We'll go back to soccer here. It's the Women's World Cup, and Morocco just became the first Arab country to ever qualify for the round of sixteen. So for um, all other Arabs like me, we are all Moroccan right now. It is beautiful. <laughs> all right, that's our show, folks. Thank you so much for joining. Joining us, KW's Growth and Development Reporter Joshua McNichols, Seattle Times General Assignment Reporter Amanda Zoe, Deputy Editor for the Seattle Met Allison Williams. Today's Week in Review is produced by Alec Cowan, social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Zeki Hamid, in for Bill Radke. And please remember to go to kw.org slash feedback and fill out that survey to tell us what you want out of Week in Review. Please don't trash me. Be kind. All right, everybody. That's it for today. Have a wonderful weekend. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.